Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I've been thinking about getting back into suspenders. Okay. <laughs> and that's a, and I do I do realize I said back into suspenders because I, there was a previous era of suspenders. Yes. Th- there was a weird because I've been thinking a lot like indie sleaze has become like this big thing again, and I was firmly a part of that scene in New York City in like the mid to late two thousands, and I did have a bit of a phase in which I wore suspenders with deep V neck American Apparel t shirts. I've always wanted to see that. Yeah. Can I? <laughs> you know what? We're going to get back into that. <laughs> Not, oh no. No more deep V-necks for me. I will dig up out of my Indie Sleaze archives and maybe I will put something on Instagram because I looked horrible and amazing all at the same time, just like everybody did back then. What does this have to do with Patti Smith? She wore suspenders on the cover of her debut album. Those, that was, oh, actually they was, they were not. Really? No, they were not suspenders. You see, I'm here to tell you to tell you different. Are you well actualing me? I'm fucking suspenders. Welcome to No Dogs in Space. <laughs> I'm Carolina Hidalgo. I'm Marcus Parks. Welcome to Patty Smith Part 3, motherfuckers. Yes, thank you. I'd like to thank you all for not coming to Peter Frampton tonight. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I really appreciate you guys coming out, mm-hmm. checking out our show. It's not live. No. This is not live. No, but not it, yet. It feels it's going to be live. It's coming. We'll let you know about that soon. As soon as we can. But we should start the show. Yeah, let's right. start the okay. show. And you know what? Carolina's starting us off today. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun opposite day here at the LPN <laughs> Studios. All right, so last week, where we last left off, Patti Smith had been performing with her band at CBGB's every week for months to an almost empty crowd. <laughs> but by the time record executive and Columbia Records president Clive Davis saw her on stage one night in 1975, she had amassed a pretty big cult following which packed out the venue to the point where CBGBs became legendary on its own. Goddamn right. Yes. Oh I, No, I'm not done yet. I know. There's, there's more oh, to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Clive Davis quickly signed Patty on his new Arissa Records a label with, with an unprecedented seven-album deal and a $750,000 advance. Jeez. That's unprecedented because Patty Smith was a poet-turned-rock-and-roll singer in a downtown underground scene. This was huge. 
huge. And what else? Patty, who had come to New York City eight years earlier, broken, homeless, looking for work and a place to stay, had only agreed to sign to the label as long as she had, get this, complete artistic control. Ooh, yes. good and bad, both. We'll get into that later. <laughs> it wasn't about the dollar signs. It was important that she did it exactly the way she wanted to do it. No compromises. And so, of course, this is important because this is her debut album, which is going to be so much more than just singing songs and then putting it on tape, which I know, I realize, Record, people, <laughs> I do realize that is a lot more. But with this, this particular story, Patti Smith has clear objectives. And just like many poets, artists, and songwriters, she has something to say. Goddamn right. And for Patti Smith, the culmination of everything she'd been working towards since arriving in New York City with 30 bucks to her name eight years earlier was put on full display in her groundbreaking debut album, Horses. Boy was in the hallway drinking a glass of tea. From the other end of the hallway, a rhythm was generating. Another boy was sliding up the hallway. His golden legs merged perfectly. He merged perfectly. With the hallway, he merged perfectly. The mirror in the hallway. The boy looked at Johnny. Johnny wanted to run, but the movie kept moving as planned. The boy took Johnny. He pressed him against a locker. He drove it in. He drove it home. He drove it deep. And Johnny, the boy disappeared. Johnny fell on his knees, started crashing his head against a locker. Started crashing his head against a locker. Started laughing hysterically when suddenly Johnny gets a feeling he's being surrounded by horses, 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 horses coming in in all directions. White, shining, silver, studs with their nose in flames. He saw horses, horses. on for another eight and a half minutes. I know. It's great. <laughs> I love that. It's incredible. That song is absolutely fucking incredible. Now, concerning those objectives that Carolina mentioned, first and foremost was the mixture of poetry and rock and roll. And the song we just played, Land, that is a prime example of that alchemy. See, when the Patti Smith group wrote a song, it usually started with one of the instrumentalists riffing on something like a three-chord garage rock roundabout. We talked about that last episode. Three chords merged with the power of the word. Or... You'd have a piano progression by keyboardist Richard Soule. But either way, it was always something rooted in rock and roll. Then, Patty would either improvise or leaf through the piles of poems she'd written throughout the early 70s. Because remember, between the time she performed for the first time at St. Mark's Church and when she rejoined Lenny Kay for their second performance two and a half years later, she'd published two books of poetry. Land, the song we just played, for example... Partly inspired by a William S. Burroughs novel called The Wild Boys. The Wild Boys. <laughs> Sorry, every time we hear the title, I always have to put my arms out. The Wild Boys. <laughs> the Wild Boys. Hey, hey uh, do you guys uh, do you guys keep this in stock? The Wild Boys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, she's doing trying. the Muppet arm wave right now. <laughs> Sorry, because they're wild. And the, the guy's named Johnny. Yeah. That's the point. Guy's named Johnny. 
But Land is actually three poems put together with not a hell of a lot of singing when you really examine the whole song. Starting with a pitch black nightmare of a poem called Horses, in which a boy named Johnny is brutally assaulted in a locker room, the scene shifts at the climax of the first act when Johnny becomes surrounded by the eponymous horses who gallop right into the rock and roll land of Boney Maroney in the second poem, Land of a Thousand Dances. And after a few minutes of a three-chord twist that borrows Wilson Pickett's song of the same name, poetry and rock and roll come together in the song's climax with the poem La Mer, which name-checks Patty's heroic... Eh, La Mer? I know, I'm sorry. I, does that mean, like, the ocean or shit? <laughs> I think it means the ocean. Oh, mer. <laughs> mer. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did um, Duolingo for a week. <laughs> well, that name-checks Patty's heroic hero, Rimbo, in one line, does the Watusi in the next, and cinches it all together with his skull shot open, cold snakes, white and shiny, twirling and encircling. It's classic fucking Patty Smith. And also Johnny stabs himself in the neck in the middle of it. It's dark as shit. It's wonderful. Yeah, and then like that last part was about the stages of Jimi Hendrix's death or something. That yeah. that was cool. Yeah. It, of course, it's the, we got a whole sea of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> now, no doubt, Patty's first and most important objective was a soaring success, because otherwise... We wouldn't be talking about this fucking album if it wasn't. But her second objective had everything to do with where the Patti Smith group recorded the album. Oh, yeah, because she had to. She insisted that they go back to Jimi Hendrix's uh, Electric Lady Studios to record horses. And remember when we said in part two, Jimi Hendrix, he he didn't get to realize his plan for his own recording studio. He, you know, he was going to bring all the musicians around the world. They were going to all play in a some sort of djembe drum circle thing. <laughs> and then they were going to come back and record the universal language of music mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, <laughs> his big plans were not realized because Jimi Hendrix died about a month later in Europe after the, the, the launch of his Electric Lady Studios. So it's up to Patty now. Uh, I mean, she's not going to do any of that. No. No, no, no. She's up to Patty to record the album that she set out to do. So she made it her mission to acknowledge artists like Jimi Hendrix. Like, she she had to forge a link that she keeps saying. Like she, So she mentions Jimi Hendrix and Land, the song we just heard, you know, about the stages of his death. And then, uh, then she writes Elegy about him. And then she also includes Jim Morrison. Because as we said in part one, watching him perform live inspired her to merge poetry with rock and roll like Peter Potter and chocolate. Mm-hmm. And it's great. <laughs> but Jim Morrison unfortunately died in 1971, yeah. a year after Jimi Hendrix died. So remember, Patti Smith was there to see all of this happening. Yeah. And don't forget about Janis Joplin. Living in New York City <laughs> in the late 60s. Was a little bit dangerous. Yeah, don't, not only that, but she had a, <laughs> Betty Smith had a specific connection to Janis Joplin. That's true. Yes, and that <laughs> we talked about in part two. So these people are dropping like flies. Yeah. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones. Mm-hmm. They all died between 1969 and 1971. That's the infamous 27 Club. Indeed. Also, if you also think about it, it's the, the J Club. As well, because I do remember reading that uh, Johnny Winter lost his fucking mind when he's like, another one? Oh, no. There's no more fucking J's left, man. There's no more fucking J's left. It's going to be me, bro. And then Robert Maplethorpe actually tried to comfort Johnny Winter and saying like, it's all right, man. But then he'd go over to Patty and was like, that is weird. (laughs) And then Patty read it. But Patty did read 
Johnny Winters, like this is all in the book, just yeah. kids, read it. Patty read Johnny Winters' tarot cards and she didn't see death in them, so he was fine. Mm-hmm. And he lived to he lived to be 70. Yeah. So she was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, death doesn't necessarily mean death when you're going through a tarot card reading. Oh, God, I hate tarot cards. <laughs> anyway, so for <laughs> Patty's second objective for this album is... As I said, working on a link between the great artists of before who unfortunately had just died around the time that she was coming up and the emerging artists of her time. And that includes her band, the Patti Smith Group, which is comprised of Lenny Kay on lead guitar, Richard Soule, the classically trained pianist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you, 14? Yes, I am. <laughs> Ivan Kroll on bass and J.D. Daugherty on drums. So the five of them walk into Electric Lady Studios with some songs prepared, some not so much, but with very clear intentions of what kind of record it was going to be. Basically, Patty's going to make an art form out of studio recording. Yeah. Now, to produce horses, Patty Smith chose the best guy you could choose to do that. She chose John Cale. John Cale's only five years out from his brilliant tenure as half of the genius that made up the core of the Velvet Underground's original lineup. Since Caleb left, though, he'd become both a solo artist and a record producer. By the time he was tapped for Horses, he'd already helped in the creation of punk by producing the first Stooges album. He'd pushed that creation even further by producing the debut for The Modern Lovers. And he'd even put a gigantic stamp on alternative folk by producing the first two albums from his old Velvet Underground bandmate, Nico. Nico. (laughs) You know they call him the midwife of Pog. Stop using the dishwasher. It takes too long. It uses too much water. I don't like it when you use the glue traps because I can hear the rats screaming. (laughs) (laughs) I told you, use the cruelty-free ones. (laughs) They don't fucking work, Nico. They don't. We try. But all that aside, Patty said in a 1976 interview, perhaps facetiously, that she partly chose John Cale for the same reason that she stole a copy of Rimbo's Illuminations when she was a teenager. That is, pure physical attraction. Now, I will concede that this sounds shallow, and it plays into a lot of the criticism that Patty Smith has gotten over the years, and especially the criticism that she got from her peers in the 70s. But when you take the knee-jerk slut-shaming out of the equation, I think that maybe we can examine just how much sexual attraction plays a positive part in Patti Smith's collaborations with men. For example, when she first saw the band Television at CBGB's, she openly admitted that she was mostly focused on how badly she wanted to fuck the long-neck guitarist, Tom Verlaine. And of course, Verlaine later played guitar to great effect on both her first single and her debut album. Mm-hmm. She'd also had a long emotional and sexual relationship with Robert Maplethorpe during her formative years. And that, of course, shaped her as an artist. Patti Smith would not be Patti Smith without Robert Maplethorpe. And that's not even to mention her illicit affair with Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Sam Shepard. Of course, that resulted in the play Cowboy Mouth. Wow. <laughs> it, it's almost like it, it's a good idea. <laughs> so we should listen to her pussy. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and while some might see sexual attraction as a shallow reason for picking collaborators and idols, you might consider it star fucking at best 
I think it's a manifestation of Patty's instincts as an artist. Damn straight. But she also liked his solo records. Yeah. And how good they sounded. So maybe she's just trying to be like a little cute about it, but she does her homework. Yes, she really does. I mean, I think that her sexual desires, at least in the early years, I think they're inextricably linked to her creative instinct. And that's why horses kind of makes you horny. And that's even outside of Patti Smith's orgasmic delivery of G-L-O-R-I-A on the opening track. That's right. Little little Richard did the same shit, you know? He did, uh, coming from an orgy, he'd be like, someone give me a piano. (laughs) You know? If he could do it, Patti Smith could do it. And anyone could do it. Goddamn right. I mean, if you try, that's what Patti Smith understood about rock and roll from the very beginning. That's what excited her about it. She wrote about it in Cream Magazine when she first saw the Rolling Stones. Most, that, is the horniest article I've ever read in my life. <laughs> it is. And that's for her. That's what it's about. Rock and roll is, and sex are inextricably linked. And so on stage, when she performs, she has this certain animal magnetism. Yeah. That's what John uh, Kale uh, said, because he, he noticed he flew to New York to watch her perform live before they started the album. And that's when he saw that animal magnetism. Yeah. Because she, she reminded him of Iggy Pop in many ways. And like, you know, she's so unique and so wild with this totally insane energy that can barely be contained. Yeah, feral almost. Yes, but also kind of funny and vulnerable and human, just like Iggy Pop. Yeah. Really, very much so. <laughs> so. And remember, John Cale, he produced Iggy Pop. So he's like, okay, I can figure this out. Right. But the thing is, is that once he started working with Patti Smith, he's like, okay, that's General Patton over there. Yeah. Because she was a whole different kind of person. She was extremely guarded and protective over the recordings, the music, her bandmates, everything. Uh, She was not afraid to be confrontational. She would constantly be in John Cale's face. Like, I don't want this overproduced or too corporate or glamorized. Like, I mean, I'm not here to make stadium rock. Yeah. All right. I want this to be a record by real rock and roll people. No compromises. And so for the next five weeks from midnight to like six, seven in the morning, they recorded. But most of all, they argued. Yes. Yes. John and <laughs> Patty argued about nearly every single thing. Every day there was a new argument. Patty wanted to get looser. She wanted more spontaneity. Like, why do we have to fix anything in post? And what scratch vocals? <laughs> why can't I just sing it great every time? The magic's there. Just, just press record. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to have add any shit to it. Basically, it's like a salad. Yeah. Right? Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Patty, so like I said, fucking get, lay this on me. Okay, lay it yeah, on okay. me. Patty wanted like some lettuce, maybe cut some tomatoes, uh, cucumber. Cucumber's good. Yeah. Throw that in. But John wanted to throw a lot of shit in it. You know, a bunch of stuff you don't need. Some sprouts, you know, some avocados, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the little tomatoes, the little cherry ones that never it. taste good when you bite in and they spit out I like the it. other tomato those. stuff. I love those. I'm on John Kale's side. I the love those cherry tomatoes. tangerine slices. Why do you fucking put that in salad? <laughs> anyway, so he was going through his Beach Boys phase. So he's like, let's add this and this and that. Oh, and yeah. she's like, He's no, trying to make it sound like pet sounds. No shit in my salad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put shit in Patty's salad. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> so, yes, he had a lot more structure in mind, right? And so got, he's going to mold her. Yes, that, that's what he's thinking. Well, well, he's also trying to contain yeah. this, <laughs> okay. this feral wild child yeah. at the same time. And at one point, John even asked, like, why did he, you even pick me to be your producer? And Patty said, I like how your records sound. And John said, you fool. You should have hired my engineer, <laughs> which I love that he said 
He called her a fool. <laughs> you fool! Which I'd imagine in a Welsh in a Welsh accent probably sounds great. That's not even the first time we've had this. This is the second series in a row where somebody has had that fucking problem. Remember when the replacements uh, hired Tommy Erdely because they loved how the Ramones sounded and they found out they really wanted Ed Stasium because Ed Stasium was the engineer for the Ramones? They don't know what they want. <laughs> <laughs> so between the tears streaming down their faces and John Cale banging his head against a control board, they were moments of brilliance. Yes. Like when John put Patty's voice on the forefront of the mix and had her improvise against herself, meaning they would do several takes, uh, sometimes louder, sometimes softer, sometimes screaming, seeing how she uses language and improvisation. Because he noticed when he recorded with Lou Reed in in, in the Velvet Underground that Lou Reed would use a lot of psychological insights. Yeah. Like uh, Edie Sedgwick, oh, femme fatale. Doesn't she have a few problems? (laughs) Things like that. But Patty, she was different. She was channeling more from a Methodist preacher rhythm, like yeah. a preaching rhythm kind of thing oh. that she was going with. She was almost speaking in tongues sometimes. Yeah, without a doubt. So that's when John Cale figured, I just got to push her to keep going. I don't care if she drives me crazy. I'm going to drive her crazy back. <laughs> Let's record Birdland. <laughs> so for Birdland, this song, it started out as a short poem that turned into this nine-minute-long improvisational whirl of a fever dream that took hold when Patty was behind the mic in the recording booth. She said this experience was like nothing she's ever experienced before. It was transcendent. Yeah. Now, to that point, Birdland is a bit of a beautiful mess, let's yeah. call it. I it's, love it. Yeah, I fucking adore it. I listened to it last night. Uh, I figured out last night that uh, the walk from our house to the pharmacy and back is one Birdland. You know, it's also two Meredith Brooks's bitch <laughs> songs, by the way, just so you know. Well, Birdland is Patty's attempt at being a human saxophone, as she put it, channeling the spirit of one of her musical heroes, Charlie Bird Parker. But just like improvised jazz will have its flubs and foibles, unless it's played by a master like Charlie Parker or a Thelonious Monk, so too does Patty Smith's Birdland have stumbles and drawn-out consonants, like when she says slits, trying to find the next line. However, that does not mean that Birdland is meaningless or aimless. It actually has my vote for the best song ever written about the overwhelming, sometimes manic, and constantly confusing nature of what people say it's like to have an experience with a UFO. It's the best UFO song ever written. Isn't that crazy? You didn't think you were going to walk in and talk about this today. Well, here we are. I'll also say right here that Patti Smith does know her shit when it comes to UFOs. Because in her memoir, Just Kids, she briefly name-checks paranormal and occult author Colin Wilson, which we've used as a source on last podcast dozens of fucking times. But paranormal cred aside, Patti's improvised performance perfectly captures the moment When belief meets hope, when the human brain creates something paranormal, something that doesn't care if it's in or out of reality, which is exactly what was created by the protagonist in Birdland. Nobody there 
except for the birds around the New England farm. And they gathered in all directions like roses they scattered. And they were like compass squares coming together into the head of a shaman bouquet. Slitting his nose and all the others went shooting. And he saw the lights of traffic begging for him like that. Hands of Blake grabbing at his cheeks, taking out his neck, all his limbs. Everything was twisted And he said, I won't give up Won't give up Don't let me give up I won't give up Give me it, let me go up fast Take me up quick, take me Now, while Birdland was completely improvised in the studio, at least for the most, yeah, it was. That, it was. That, okay, it was okay, complete. Yeah. Like they kind of had something to start with, yeah, and then they were going to see where it was going to go, and it was supposed to take like five, six minutes, and they're like, "Okay, we're wrapping it up," and that's when John Cale was like, "No, keep going." Yeah, nine minutes, sixteen seconds. Patty Smith and her band, however, did come to the sessions with structured songs that were written from Patty's own experiences, although tracks one and two. Both pre-written songs achieved Patty's third objective by accident. See, in the mid-70s, when Horses was released with Gloria as the first track, it was the track that we started this whole fucking series with, it was standard for a female singer covering a male singer song to change gender perspective when it came to the singer's object of affection. But in Gloria, it would have been impossible for Patty to change the gender unless she changed the song to fucking George or something, which would have been funny but stupid. So stupid. But since she didn't do that, it very much sounds upon first listen that Patty Smith really, really wants to fuck this girl named Gloria. All right. Here she comes. Wasn't you? bisexual, lesbian, and questioning women listened to Gloria and had their minds blown. Because here you had a woman 
who was unapologetically and very clearly lusting after another woman. And the track that came after Gloria only seemed to confirm it, especially if you were in the know. Yeah, the song Redondo Beach, mm-hmm. that's the one you're talking about? Yeah. The, the track after? Okay, good. Yeah. It's based on a poem that Patty wrote when she was still living at the Chelsea Hotel a few years back. And the story goes, her younger sister, Linda, was staying with her at the time. And one day they had a loud argument. So Linda got up and left. And she didn't come back until like very late that night, which led Patty to write a poem about a girl who goes to the beach to drown herself. This is, you know, it was an intrusive thought. Yeah. You know, while she had while her sister was missing. But ever since she wrote it into a song, it's usually interpreted as a lesbian love song that ends in tragedy. And also Redondo Beach being a popular hangout spot for gay and lesbian people in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So this song and Gloria, like you said, are two classic examples of Patty going beyond sexuality and gender because Patty thinks of herself as just an artist. Yeah. And just her art is limitless, free to move across many forms, barriers, genders, whatever, which I totally get because she's a poet. She's taking a personal story about her sister and giving it a little bit more of a universal approach. It's very well done. But I don't believe her intention was to reach out to everybody. Because she, the thing is, is that Patty, she had this particular type of person in mind who she felt could use some inspiration, especially when she was writing and recording horses. People who are different, different from their families or from their town or from society. People like her. You can pretty much you can have the disenfranchised umbrella. Yeah. Right. The underrepresented, the, the freaks, the weirdos, the homosexuals, the liberals, <laughs> the artists, the thinkers, the sector, you know, the, the creative people, <laughs> all of us under one umbrella. It's like this is a record made with you in mind to show that you are not alone. So many people in the lesbian community interpret this song, Redondo Beach, as a lesbian love song that ends in tragedy where the girl who drowns dies by suicide because she isn't accepted in society for being gay. It could very well be about that, too. Mm-hmm. Poetry, man. Right? <laughs> it's poetry. Okay. So it also has a reggae beat to it, which kind of gives it a beachy feeling, <laughs> which I don't know if that was on purpose. Oh, no, that's the weirdest thing about it is that it's a reggae song. It, but, uh, it's, a, it's, not a, it's, it's got reggae flavor. Yeah, it's a bit, raw, a bit raga. It's a bit yeah. raga. Please enjoy. Redondo Beach is a beach where women love other women. I try not to do it last night, but I did ask. I almost asked you out loud, like, how long are you going to be gone, gone? 
because <laughs> it is very catchy when you listen it to it yeah. enough, as many times as we have in the last five months. <laughs> and that's not the only song written about a member of Patty's family. Yeah. Uh, there's also another one on this album that was written by, remember, her then boyfriend, Alan Lanier, the keyboardist for Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, he wrote the music and Patty wrote the words, of course, the lyrics about when her baby sister was born, when they were living in that. It's your baby sister. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when her baby sister was born, when they were living, remember, in rural South Jersey. Um, and and it, it's, it's a beautiful song. It's called Kimberly. I love this song. It's very, um, what's it, Spanish stroll. Yeah. It's like a nice day in New York City, Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But going back one more time, speaking of which, going back to the sexual energy of the album. <laughs> Patty herself actually introduced sexual tension into the studio, or at least that's how producer John Cale saw the situation. Oh, I, she, she did. <laughs> she did. And oh. it was glorious. <laughs> See, Alan Lanier was, as Carolina mentioned, her boyfriend. And as she also mentioned, he'd co-written Kimberly, the song we just heard. But Patty was also fucking television guitarist Tom Verlaine on the side. And Verlaine contributed to Horses by adding his signature nervous thousand bluebird guitar style to the soaring track Break It Up. And lyrically, the song is about a dream Patty Smith had involving Jim Morrison. But from my reading of the song, or at least in my instrumental reading of the song, 
Tom Verlaine's guitar playing on Break It Up sounds like a guy trying to fuck better than the boyfriend and succeeding. Whoa. <laughs> Listen to it. I believe you. You believe me. You believe yes, me. I Listen do. to it. Listen to the thrusts. <laughs> I said was shining. I could feel my heart. It was melting. I tore off my clothes. I danced on my shoes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Just before that part where she goes into the orgasmic delivery, she says, I'm coming. Okay. You, no, <laughs> what no, more no. do you want I need from more me? evidence. Because <laughs> um, it's based on a dream that Patti Smith had when she saw, like, in her mind's eye, Jim Morrison was trapped with his wings like Prometheus in the, this marble slab, and he couldn't break it up to get up and soar through. He was struggling to get free to freedom, but... You're right. She's just coming. Um, <laughs> but and, but also what, one thing I did, I don't know if you do mention it, but it, the, the tension was so insane yeah. that they almost got in each other's faces, apparently, because Alan Lanier from Blue Oyster Cult kind of felt like because he was a big time rock star at that time. Yeah. And Tom Verlaine wasn't yet. Right. But he was big time Alan. So he kind of felt like he needed to a lot more respect. Yeah. Then he got from John Cale or Lenny Kay. They're all like, you're just Patty's boyfriend to us. Yeah, who gives a shit? Yeah, you're but, a Lewis recall. But they got a little bit in a tizzy. <laughs> I mean, there's one account says they came to blows. I That's I, one account I that I heard. Got, I think it got intense. I bet they like... I bet they slap fought a little bit. Like it was like they just, you know, that thing where like two guys who don't know how to fight, try to fight each other and they just kind of grapple with each other for a little bit. And then, yeah, it's like kind of grabbing onto their shirt or something. Yeah. Yeah. That might've happened once, but that's the thing. When you listen to Kimberly, that's a piano based track. Like I said, it's a, it's a nice stroll. You know, it's, it's, Hand and arm, walking down Avenue A on Sunday afternoon. It sounds like a song that you write with your boyfriend. Break it up. Sounds like a dirty night that's stinky and sweaty in all the right fucking ways. It's written with the guy she was fucking about the guy she wished she could fuck, Jim Morrison. But the thing to remember about Verlaine's presence is that he wasn't just brought into the studio to make Alan Lanier jealous. Or so Patty could play with Tom Verlaine's emotions, although both of those things were certainly a consequence of her actions. In artistic terms, Verlaine was brought in because Patty knew that he could add something to the song that no one else could. See, Verlaine was part of the new guard of rock and roll. His Marquee Moon by Verlaine's band Television, it's one of, if not the best, early alternative albums 
of the 70s. Yes. Personal opinion. No, that's what she meant by new guard, new people, new ideas. Mm-hmm. And by bringing Tom Verlaine into the studio for her debut album, Patty had achieved her fourth and final objective in recording Horses, which was to bring the artist from the new generation along with her. Now, Break It Up was one of the last songs recorded. And by the end of the five weeks they spent recording and mixing the album, Patti Smith and John Cale had produced a classic, a revolution, one of the most influential albums of the decade, if not the century. Everything that Patti was and had went into the writing and recording of this album, physically and mentally, to the point where she dropped to just 93 pounds by the end of it. And so when it came time to shoot the cover photo, Patti chose an old friend who certainly understood the importance of sacrifice when it came to art. She made a call to her old friend, Robert Maplethorpe. Oh, yeah. Good old Robert. Remember her ex-boyfriend, former roommate, artist, painter, sculptor, jeweler, pogo stick champion of 259th Street. Monkey owner. He, yes, who would become a world famous photographer, particularly of the underground BDSM fetish scene. I was going to say New York, but I think this is a world uh, worldly BDSM fetish scene. He started in New York, uh, but definitely expanded. Yes, it expanded. So for the cover of Horses, it's a very simple shot. It's a black and white photograph of Patti Smith standing against a white wall with this coolest shit look on her face, staring directly at the camera or at Robert, really, who was behind the camera. It's so iconic. And even though Robert and Patti, at this point when they were taking the photo, they had both moved on since their Chelsea Hotel days, there was no doubt that Robert was going to shoot this cover because Patti... She was his first model when he first started his career as a photographer. They still felt very close to one another, which is why he's just so perfect for this. So they picked a day and Robert said, "Okay, we're going to do this at Sam's penthouse apartment. Sam being Sam Wagstaff, uh, Robert's partner slash benefactor, companion for life, pretty much kind of guy. They're like, "Okay, let's go to his to his penthouse. It's flooded with natural light. And there's this triangle there that reflects the light from the window that looks really cool. I want to photograph you in front of it. And they're like, okay, great. That's it. They didn't discuss anything else about the shoot. The only direction Robert gave Patty was to come with a clean shirt. (laughs) That was it. And Robert only took 12 photos until he decided, I got it. Yeah. Like just holding his, I got it. You got it. I got it. How do you know? I just know. <laughs> well, like, it's all, it's like, it's all cinematic. What? Well, that was Robert Maplethorpe's process. You know, like that's what he was famous for is like setting up a set. He'd set up this entire set. He would pose everyone just perfectly and just go click and go, all right, I got it. Yes. Because <laughs> all he, right, see well, well, he grew up poor, yeah. you know, in the sense where he only had a few photos to be able to <laughs> he could use. Yeah. So he learned how to use them economically. He'd be like, yeah, I don't need to take more than six pictures to find the right one. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he's done many covers, but this is like the ultimate coolest cover. Yeah. Patty wearing a button down white shirt that she got from the Salvation Army earlier that day. A black ribbon around her neck and tucked into her pants. Oh, it's a black ribbon. I always thought that was suspenders. No, it's a black ribbon. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Tucked into her pants and her blazer with a horse pin on the lapel just slung over her left shoulder. It looks so fucking cool. Yeah. Viv Albertine from The Slits, uh, she, in her book, she, when she saw that, she's just like, she is my soul made visible. All the things I hide deep inside myself that can't come out. I've never seen a girl who looks like this. And that's the beauty of this. Patti Smith, just with that photo alone, redefined the role of women rock scene forever. And Clive Davis, 
when he saw the cover, he's just like, no, I don't want it. And uh, Patty, she insisted. She looked at the total artistic control part of her contract and mm-hmm. kept pointing at it constantly. <laughs> and then Clive's like, fine. Don't make me tap the contract again. <laughs> <laughs> and Clive's like, why don't we airbrush at least a little bit, you know, the, the hair over your, your lip part? She had a small mustache, yeah. And, and Patty's like, don't you fucking dare. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad she refused to change a thing. Yeah. Because I like that she's sexy, but she doesn't have to be. She's not smiling or trying to be amenable to anybody or anywhere. She's just standing there on her own two feet for nobody else but herself. Well, what I love about it is that it's like she has somewhat of an arrogant look on her face, but you want to know why she's arrogant. What is it? Because she looks like she's got a secret, but you got to get in there to yeah. fucking actually listen. If to you it. can, if you want to. Yeah. Doesn't matter. She don't care. Yeah. It's, it's great. A, and it's also sexy. Like it's very come hither. <laughs> no, when Horses was released on November 10th, 1975, coincidentally the same date as our wedding anniversary. Isn't that nice? We didn't get married in 1975, but we did get married in November 10th. The album was extremely divisive amongst both critics and the general public. Those that were quote-unquote in the know, like Village Voice writer Grell Marcus, who'd seen Patty perform live, he immediately got it and he loved it. Others, however, like the reviewer at the New York Times, rightfully acknowledged some people were simply going to find horses annoying, which I also get. I get it if you don't like it. But he nonetheless called it an extraordinary record. In the burgeoning New York punk scene, though, Patty had both her champions and her detractors. Joey Ramone is a fucking gigantic Patty Smith fan from day one. But Max's Kansas City DJ and punk also ran Jane County. She despised Patty to the point where she actually spent time writing and performing a roasty, kind of lame parody of land in which Smith's chant of horses, horses was replaced with wildebeest, wildebeest. It's not clever. It no. doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's not clever. No. Similarly, over at Melody Maker in the UK, it was written that horses represented everything that was wrong with rock and roll in the mid-70s. They thought that horses was an example of the quote-unquote affected affected amateurism that was quickly overtaking the Emerson, Lake, and Palmer prog rock that Melody Maker preferred. They were like the mu- the Musos journal. Yeah. So I saw. The Musos? Yeah, I had to uh, look up what Muso meant. Mm-hmm. And it's like someone that's like really good at stuff. Oh. Technically proficient. Got, yeah, no, they, they wanted nine-minute organ solos, which I'm also down for. Don't get me wrong. But Melody Maker, they saw that punk is coming and they didn't like it but based on the good reviews and on the eye-catching cover horses actually did well commercially by reaching number 47 on the billboard 200 which was good for any release much less a collection of arty rock poems it sold 200,000 copies the first year yeah that is a huge success yes and so what the commercial success of horses proved was that this downtown new york rock scene centered around a scuzzy little club it could move units. Both Television and Blondie signed to Chrysalis Records. Television, by the way, I think also had a Robert Maplethorpe cover. While Seymour Stein's Sire label would sign the Ramones in addition to another artier CBGB band that was more influenced by visual art than poetry. That band was another surprising hit. The Talking Heads.
wish we could be talking heads. I wish we could. Maybe one day. One day, maybe they'll all speak to each other. Write yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a book that we can really use. Yeah, not just because if you want to hear fucking three, ep- four episodes of He Said, She Said. Uh, yeah, the, the maybe, but I don't know. Anyway, back to Patty. Yes, back to Patty. Here we are. It's 1976. And the Patty Smith Group goes on tour to promote horses. Yeah. And around the beginning of the horses tour, they stopped in Detroit where someone met a special someone. <laughs> That's right. Lenny Kay met Fred Sonic Smith from the MC5. Mm-hmm. Lenny Kay met. Who then met Patty Smith. <laughs> Here's Fred Sonic Smith, Sonic's Rendezvous Band. the rockers yeah so they were all hanging out at this hot dog joint before the gig in in detroit and lenny k he starts talking to fred because he's a big mc5 fan hey i'm a big fan all that business and lenny wanted him to play uh, you know the encore because at the end of their show they do a cover of the who's my generation Mm -hmm. they would usually get a local guitarist from that town to do like the bass uh part <laughs> yeah, bass part. That works. Bass part. Yes, it's a bass part. That's what it's called. It's called a bass part. I, I, yeah. Yes, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> what would you? What would you call it otherwise? So they would usually get a local guitarist <laughs> to to just play on that song. Okay, play the bass on that song. And so Lenny brought Fred over to Patty, introduced it to Boom, Love Sparks everywhere. And after the show, after the le- bass part. <laughs> Patty and Fred spent the night together. Yeah. And they quietly slip out the next morning, promising to see each other again. Mm. Yes, you see. Okay, they're going to get married and they're going to have two kids. Yes. You don't have to fast forward to the end. (laughs) This is what happens. They're going to get married they're going to have two kids. She's met the love of her life. That's right. Now, not too long after coming off their first American tour, which she promised to stay in touch with Fred Sonic Smith, the Patty Smith. And by the way, he's called Fred Sonic Smith because there was already a Fred Smith in television. So they had to differentiate him somehow. Now, the Patty Smith group made their TV debut on the first season of Saturday Night Live, oddly sharing the episode with Gerald Ford's 
press secretary who was host that night. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Gerald Ford probably watched this episode. He 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 filmed a couple video segments yeah. for the for this episode. It's also the one with the Bassomatic on it. Dan Aykroyd's Bassomatic. That's true. Love that sketch. About a month later, the Patti Smith group traveled overseas for their first European tour. And during two shows in London, the band would transform the British punk scene, even if the scene in the UK was just as split on their opinion of Patti as everyone was in America. Now, the tour was set to end in London, but to drum up interest prior to the gig, the Patti Smith group appeared on a British live music showcase called the Old Grey Whistle Test. Now, the musical acumen of this performance wasn't necessarily top-notch because Lenny Kay's guitar was out of tune and at least one solo was played in the, entire, in the wrong key entirely, way far off. But Patti Smith's incredible energy and her performance of Land matched up with Hey Joe. It helped sell out the last two shows of the tour, set for the Roundhouse in London. But by the time the band got to those shows, they'd played seven European dates in seven days. No small feat. So the Patti Smith group was very fucking tired by the time they made it to London. Mm. Therefore, the performances themselves got mixed reviews at the time. But it wasn't necessarily the shows themselves that were important. Much like the so-called Sex Pistols gig that changed the world in Manchester, it was the audience that made Patti Smith's Roundhouse shows legendary. Yes. But first, let's talk about the mixed reviews. Because <laughs> <laughs> the British press, they were all there. So Enemy, New Musical Express, loved it. Yeah. Melody Maker, hated it. <laughs> Sounds, it was great. Great, great, great. It was so great. Yeah. I'm writing it all day long. It was great. <laughs> but the audience... Loved it. Yeah. You see, it was sold out. It was packed. Everyone was jumping up and down, pogoing, arms flailing, all of them, all 1,700 people following Patty's every move. And one of them was a Portuguese student named Ana da Silva. She said the show that night was life changing. She watched Patty take a flower, put it in her mouth, and spat it out. <laughs> kind of like, that's what I think about your flower power. Yeah. It was so cool. Anna said, like, I'll never forget that till the day I die. <laughs> and in the next year, Anna would meet Gina Birch, and together they'll form the Raincoats. The Raincoats, of course, being one of the most important underground post-punk bands of all time and the precursor to the Riot Girl generation. Mm -hmm. Just say. <laughs> they were there. <laughs> and also at that show was Paloma Romero, a.k.a. Paul Mollum, who would later be in the Raincoats for a time as well. But before that, she was a 21-year-old Spanish drummer who had been kicked out of Sid Vicious's band, The Flowers of Romance, because she looked too much like a hippie, a.k.a. she had a mouth and she wasn't hot enough for him. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, so Paul Mollett, rightly pissed off, set off to start an all-girl band with her buddy Kate Kors. But they needed a lead singer, a front woman, as strong as Patty. And they find her at the Patty Smith concert, of course! At the Roundhouse show, they met... 14-year-old Ari Up, who was throwing a tantrum at her mother, just making this huge scene. And that's when Paul Mollive realized, I want that girl to front our new band. And then after Kate left, they added two other Patti Smith fans, a bassist named Tessa Pollitt and Viv Albertine on guitar to form The Slits.
Now, remember how I said the show was so packed? Both shows mm -hmm. sold out May 16th, 17th, 1976. Well, that still didn't stop people from jumping through a hole in the roof into the crowd to get into the show. Paul Simonon from The Clash was one of them. Ooh, Mick Jones, good job. Yeah, Mick Jones was there, too. Everyone in The Clash was there, and The Clash wasn't even The Clash yet. And this was a time when Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, and Keith Levine were trying to get Paul Mollive's boyfriend to front their new band. This guy who called himself Woody Malore. He's not a golfer, okay? <laughs> you see, Woody was a fantastic guitar player and frontman. His band did classic rock and R&B covers of Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, and they would usually end their set with a rendition of Gloria, the, the same garage rock song that Patty, obviously, you know, you've been listening, you know. <laughs> but that's not because of Patty. That's, that song was just a staple in many local like pub rock bands at yeah. the time. But you see, Woody didn't want to be in a band just doing 20-year-old R&B covers in bars all over town. He wanted to play more original music and be a part of something exciting, and his band just wasn't quite there, especially when the Sex Pistols opened for them and tore the place apart with their insanely nihilistic, exciting madhouse of a show. Yeah. And that night when Mick Jones and Paul Simonon came up to Woody and said, you're great, but your band's shit. <laughs> Woody listened. Actually, he called himself Joe Strummer by then. Yeah. And the next month when he saw Patti Smith at the Roundhouse, he couldn't stop raving about her for weeks. He knew he had to leave his band and do something exciting but not before doing a few gigs he already committed to. So here he is with his band, the 101ers, only a few days after the Roundhouse shows and a week from joining and fronting The Clash. Yeah, and he still can't stop talking about Patti Smith, even when he's on stage. Here's them doing a cover of Them's Gloria. I want to them a man, and all of them is women. So uh, I like to talk to both kinds. Now, I just happen to be a man. But that's nothing. I've seen Patty Smith, and she can do it, and she's a woman. So none of you women would go around with half pretending to be men. You don't have to bother, just be women, all right? Anyway, I'm waiting for one of those kind of people, which is here and after, Carl Women. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Now, you see, uh, I'm waiting in my bad flat uptown. You know, the kind of box. Conquering box with a little bit of luck. Yeah, I'm waiting, you know. Now, I call my baby and she said she'd be around here by about midnight. So, I can wait till midnight. I can just hang around and wait it. I can't hear a sound. No, I can't hear a sound. I can't hear a sound. It's all I'm on it. I mean, okay, man, the Ronald Winners are still pretty fucking good. Oh, yeah, no, they're fantastic. <laughs> they're really, like, they really are. Yeah, really yeah, good. keys to my heart. I fucking love that song. Yeah. Now, just like New York City, Patti Smith had her detractors and her champions in the UK. Of course, Joe Strummer, obvious champion. Johnny Rotten, not so much. Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols hated Patti Smith's whole shtick, giving her debut album two out of ten for effort in an interview. That's one more than I thought he'd get. <laughs> However, in that same thought, 
Rotten also gave her begrudging respect, noting that he liked her for having to be physically carried up the stairs after her second Roundhouse show. But with Patti Smith's next album... That means he was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was there. He's just the whole... He still came to both fucking shows. I know, going, that's the thing about Johnny Rock. <laughs> Why did you show up to my kid's christening? To tell you it sucks. <laughs> but with Patti Smith's next album, recorded less than a year after Horses, she lost the respect of most of her champions and gave her detractors even more shit to throw in her direction. Although I'm not sure this album entirely deserves its bad reputation. I'm not necessarily going to defend it 100% (laughs) like Patti Smith and Lenny K do, but it doesn't deserve the hate that it gets. Now, perhaps thinking back on what hell making horses had been with an artistic producer like John Cale, Patti Smith bypassed others of Cale's ilk like David Bowie and Brian Eno. And this was before Bowie produced Iggy Pop's The Idiot and before Brian Eno produced the best three Talking Heads albums. That is to say, Patti Smith could have been the first person to collaborate with these artists who also proved to be incredible producers, meaning she missed an opportunity to create even more groundbreaking material. I mean, technically, Bowie had produced uh, Raw Power, but, well, you know. Yeah, we know. We know. (laughs) Instead, though, Patty went in the complete opposite direction and chose a top 40 producer, Jack Douglas, who was known mostly for producing four incredibly successful Aerosmith records. Now, it's debatable as to whether or not Patty Smith was gunning specifically for a top 40 hit when she made this album. But what you can't argue with is that when her second album, Radio Ethiopia, was released, what she'd produced was a comparatively straightforward 70s heavy rock album. Yeah. Now, if you're into that sort of thing, Radio Ethiopia really doesn't get enough credit for being a solid addition to the 70s heavy rock space. It's the type of stuff Ed Larson listens to. And I think. Yeah, hey, Ed Larson from Round Table, gentlemen and brighter side. Yeah, 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 no, that's that's Ed's scene, man. And I got to fucking give him Radio Ethiopia when we get out there. But I think it does give you a glimpse into that alternate reality we talked about in episode two, where Patti Smith became lead singer of Blue Oyster Cult. Actually, you can hear a lot of different artistic influences in Radio Ethiopia, both coming and going. My personal favorite song is Poppies, in which one can hear just a hint of Tom Waits, who was interestingly, during those years, being described in the UK press as the male Patti Smith. It's right. It's, I mean, I could go. Actually, I spent a long time <laughs> listening to like Tom Waits records before and after Horses and I, I can, you know, he's been up all night. <laughs> if you go between the hardest Saturday night and small change, there's a big difference. Okay, <laughs> just get it, take a nap. Maybe I'm crazy. 
Maybe it's just me. But God damn, I hear a lot of Tom Waits in that. Like I just I hear the influence, you know? You know, he uh, Marcus practices all the time, but the but the microphone's not plugged in <laughs> whenever we do this. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe. <laughs> but I'm glad it's plugged in this time. But at the end of it, Radio Ethiopia just doesn't have the blood of horses, as Gregory Corso might have put it. It's not raw, it's not dirty, and it's not even sexy when it wants to be. Instead of the intellectual tantric yoga mixed with the sweaty Lower East Side nights that you get with horses, Radio Ethiopia, it's more like a sloppy hand job from Stevie Nicks. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stevie Nicks. I'm sure they're not sloppy. Oh, is that a bad thing? I don't know if that's a bad thing. I'll never apologize to Stevie Nicks for anything. <laughs> she knows what she did. And to that point, the album's most popular song, Pissing in the River, it does help the hit-making argument, even if the word piss is in the title. Because from my hearing, it gives off some pretty heavy Fleetwood Mac vibes. <laughs> you know what you did, Stevie. <laughs> a heavy rock album. I like it. I, li- I like it, That's too. That's my favorite song on the album. And, you know, I- Ivan Kral, he wrote that song and he was he was pissed off <laughs> that Patty used the word pissing instead of like, why can't you say showering or swimming or something? <laughs> yeah. you know, because Drowning. I- yeah, because of that, it's not radio friendly. Yeah. And But Patty defended her use of pissing because it's her lyrics and her poetry. And, and this was also, this was a weird time of transition for Patty personally and career wise. Like she was having problems with her boyfriend, Alan Lanier, from the Blue Oyster quotes. Mm-hmm. And then by next year, they would break up, which would propel her relationship with Fred Sonic Smith to become more serious. But he was married at the time. Yeah. So the whole thing is complicated. <laughs> it had to work itself out. Yeah. It's going to take a long, a long time, a lot of emotions there. And that's what she was going through at the time. And she was also working a ton, like touring constantly, uh, just stopping just for a little bit to record Radio Ethiopia and then back on tour. She wasn't writing a lot of poetry, uh, not like she used to. And and she just she said she couldn't find her words for a while, which I understand. Well, that's one of the things that we talk about with how much me and you work is uh, when you're working on something creative, you have to take time to live. Yeah. Like if you don't take time to live, then your art suffers. Yeah, that is that is very true. And uh, when Radio Ethiopia came out, it was not well received. Like everyone, even people who who loved her, critics, fans, they all thought she was either playing it safe 
or she was full of shit. Yeah. Or or it was good, but not as as good as it should have been. Yeah. Like Charles Shar uh Shar Murray in uh, New Musical Express, he said, "This is my favorite line. It's a shame. <laughs> it's a shame. It's a shame, really." Uh, British baking <laughs> show. Anyway, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Radio Ethiopia had a real soggy bottom. Yes, so yeah. Patty, bit, bit claggy. <laughs> Actually, I would describe Radio Ethiopia as a bit claggy. <laughs> <laughs> so Patty, she was touring a lot uh, and and doing a lot of these new songs that were tried and tested on her audiences night after night. So you know what went wrong, and if I could do a bit of a speculative read here. Sure, speculate. Okay, I think maybe Patty was getting a bit self-involved with her message, her band, and herself. Oh, you think? Yes, starting (laughs) to feel real important, becoming a rock star, believing in her own hype. This is something a lot of people fall into. And, And then when Patty got herself a guitar and focused on the sonic soundscapes, basically feedback, yeah, basically hitting the guitar, she was just making noise with it, which is fine. Uh, but some people compared it to Yoko Ono's music. Yeah, uh, it it just felt insincere. Even though I I get why she needed a new medium, right? She didn't have her words. She said uh, she can find them, so she just carried a guitar around, not learned how to play it, and uh, you know, and then started making noises with it. It's not quite the same thing as like New York Dolls. Like, oh, they can't play well. It's like, well, at least they learned a few chords, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so with Hattie. Her just her rock star attitude just really didn't help things along with that. No. And speaking of the, uh, you know, the sonic soundscapes, like I get what she's doing with that. I get what she's trying for. But, you know, it's again, you know, she spent years working on her craft with art. She spent years working on her craft with poetry. You can't just pick up a fucking guitar and say, I'm going to do sonic soundscapes now without figuring out how it works. Well, she did, though. (laughs) <laughs> she did all those well, things that you, you said you can't do. Well, you can't you can't do it and expect the hell people- I can't. Maddie <laughs> Smith. Well, you can't expect people to uh, applaud you for it. You well, can't expect it to be good. Yeah, you kind of have to just not care what people think, and that's totally fine if that's if that's the way you want to go by it, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, so this is this is all playing into her rock star attitude at this point in her life because, like earlier in the year. Uh, when Patti Smith Group were playing in Los Angeles at the Roxy, uh, the Runaways were invited to the show because Lenny Kay was a fan. He even wore their T-shirt on stage and everything. Yeah. But when the Runaways went backstage to meet Patti, she immediately put her hand up at them and angrily said, you girls, out. Yeah. Like she just yelled at them. She kicked them out of a room like they were like children without a second thought. Yeah. And Lenny Kay was just like, OK, like, <laughs> you know, he went over to the runaways to Joan Jett and Jerry <laughs> Curie and that, all of them. It's like tried to explain, like, I don't think she understands what's going on here. You know, you're not you guys aren't part of her world. So uh. and that's when lead singer of the runaways, 17 year old Cherry Curie said not a part of her world. She's not a part of our world. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like they, oh, you should read the uh, the interview that the Runaways did because they're total teenagers. They're oh, like, oh, we hate her. Yeah. Her saggy tits are so <laughs> annoying. And they actually Joan Jett and another member said saggy tits in unison as if that's been the conversation they've been having for weeks. They they said horrible things about her. <laughs> they're like like it's like no one likes her. <laughs> that's what. They, but the thing is, Patty was being awful. Yeah, she did the same thing with the slits when when Patty went to, back to England to promote Radio Ethiopia. The Slits came backstage and the way Ari up tells it, she's like, I don't want... <laughs> she's like screaming, like, get these Slits out of here. Get these brats out of here. Like, she just didn't want anyone in, in, her, in her room, in her purview whatsoever. She had become a total diva. 
And that's and that is very hypocritical of her because she went into the recording of horses saying part of the fourth objective is to bring in the new guard, you know, is to, is to bring in these new people. That's the thing is that these are the new people, the runaways, the slits. These are the people that she's trying to bring in to uh, the new scene. And every time they try to talk to her, she's telling them to fuck off. Yes. Well, that's she's losing the message yeah. from what a lot of people said who knew her at the time. They said that she couldn't stand a female competition. Yes. That that she wanted to be the most important female rocker of her time. So she was. And this is a quote, the most obnoxious bitch on feet. <laughs> Which I, I thought I was like, wow, wow, what an insult. You know, usually and, people say bitch on wheels. I like bitch on feet better. So unfortunately, <laughs> Patty contributed to the toxic scene of women being nasty to one another due to competition, insecurity, yeah. fear of being bullied. And it goes on and on. It's an ugly part of punk history, but it really needs reminding from time to time. Yeah. And that wasn't all. She also fought. Patty also fought with the British press when she came back to England to promote Radio Ethiopia. But in Patty's defense, though, the British press are relentless. God. They are snakes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> We've talked about it again and again with the Ramones, with the Beastie Boys. They are vicious. The editor for Melody Maker already planned to hit her up with dumbass questions to annoy her and rattle her so she can act out and then they can sell more issues. That was already their meeting before going to the press conference. I, I read it in Alan Jones's book, Can't Stand Up for Falling Down, Rock and Roll War Stories. What a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could say that's the the strategy for pretty much every British journalist ever, <laughs> uh, but they really got her on this one. So, okay, so Alan Jones, he was there at the press conference telling Patty, you know, that the music in Radio Ethiopia was totally inept, even though he hadn't even heard the album. <laughs> he was trying to get her rattled, right? Patty then threw a plate of sandwiches at his head, <laughs> so she fucking took the bait. Yeah. And then Patty ended the press conference with with a really loud, call me field marshal. <laughs> I'm the marshal of rock and roll and I'm fucking declaring war. My guitar is my machine gun. <laughs> and then she just held it up over her head. Her guitar. The, the guitar she that she doesn't know, how to, play. Doesn't know how to play. <laughs> <laughs> and this is some, sounds like something Dennis Hopper would say. You know, <laughs> it's something I want on a T-shirt. Uh, or Gary Busey. Yes. So I read, <laughs> I, I did read that someone did say like for a two-year-old, it would have been a very impressive performance. But from the queen of rock and roll, it was like watching God jerk off. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hard. We're going to hold her accountable. We're going to hold her accountable. Yes, warts and all. Yeah. And that's the thing is that it's, it wasn't just the press that was turning on Patty. Like the British scene wasn't super jazzed about Patty Smith by this time either. No, not so much. I mean, she couldn't even sell out her venues yeah. anymore. And Richard Soul like had to back out due to exhaustion. So there was the hype that was there before kind of just fizzled out right, fizzled, by October. And it fizzled out fast. And it's hard to say exactly what happened between the release of Horses and Radio Ethiopia when it came to how the British fans received Patti Smith, particularly those in the burgeoning punk scene. See, before Radio Ethiopia's release, those who would become the British punks, they were already hopping off the Patti Smith train. And really, it could be a number of things. Perhaps the British didn't think they needed her anymore because the Sex Pistols, the Damned, and the Clash, they'd actually gotten good. Or perhaps the punk... Oh, remember, they also thought they, they were like the devil and should be stopped. <laughs> but this is all just to sell newspapers. Yeah. Or perhaps they thought of her as a hippie 
ironically too much a part of the old guard of rock and roll to truly be one of them. She was 30 and a lot of the these younger people were in their early to mid 20s. And yeah. when you're that age, a 30 year old looks ancient to you. Or in their teens. Remember, Arya is 14 years old. Arya right. up the lead singer yeah, of the Slits. She's true. 14. The Runaways, they're 16, 17. That's yeah. true. But personally, when it comes to the UK, I think it's more a matter of comparison. Between Patty's first show at the Roundhouse in May of 1976 and her second in October of that same year, that's how fast the fucking punk scene moved. This is between May and October. London had been host to another CBGB band that was unmistakably punk. Something mean, something scary, and most importantly, something really fucking fast. On July 4th, 1975, London saw the Ramones. It's different. It's different. It's yeah. like Patty who, who. Yeah, yeah. It's much different. I am not human. Like it's from that to. But that's I'm also not, great. Not the, oh, not the, yes, I am. Like it's, yeah, it's all, both are great. But man, the Ramones, that show, we talked about it in our Ramones series, that blew everybody away that had ever yeah. come before. Yeah. And then so the next year, uh, the Patty Smith group began 1977 with a stadium tour opening for Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. <laughs> Hit it! I love that song. I fucking love Bob Seger. And I do have, a, I guess, a confession to make. Uh, the very first artist, the very first musical artist that I ever fell in love with at five years old was Bob Seger. Wow. Yeah. Right, old time rock and roll was I used to make my parents like pull out the record and put it on the turntable and play it over and over and over again. There was something about old time rock and roll. It was my it was my first favorite song. Oh, why didn't we play that instead? <laughs> because. Because then you go crazy, start dancing <laughs> like a toddler. Probably. No, diaper. no. The reason why is because that was the tour. That was Bob Seger's. That was Bob Seger's breakthrough. 
And when Patti Smith was touring with Bob Seger, Night Moves was the big song. That was the closer. That's what everybody was waiting for. I have a huge gap in music history, apparently, (laughs) because I know nothing about Bob Seger. You don't need to. You really don't need to. This week, I learned that his band was called the Silver Bullet Band. Yeah. And and that's why I said it all weird. (laughs) But you know what? Maybe one day I'll I'll dive in deep. I'll dive in deep. If anyone knows Bob Seger, maybe he could give me a lesson on his life. Like, Like, he doesn't have time for that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Anyway, so Patty Smith Group, they opened for Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. <laughs> and he's still going, too. <laughs> and he's still going in Florida in late January 1977, because, as we said, why not? Yeah. And Patty and them, they figured, let's go with an audience that's not too familiar with us. And so, which was an interesting idea, because the first night, they didn't do well. No. And the second night, well, that was also a disaster. Yep. Because that show was in Tampa. January 23rd, 1977, they were in the middle of their set, trying their hardest to win over the crowd. When during the song, Ain't It Strange, Patty took a bit of a tumble. She was singing the words, come on, God, make a move. (laughs) It's true. And then she began spinning and spinning, like twirling around and around. And then when she stopped and reached for her microphone, she missed and tripped over a monitor and fell backward off the stage and down 14 feet to the concrete floor. She landed on her neck and hit her head hard. Hard, hard. She was then rushed to the hospital and got 22 stitches on her head. She fractured several vertebrae in her neck and spine, and she had to spend eight weeks in bed. The one good thing that came out of that was that during her recovery, she started reading and working on her poetry again. Yeah. I mean, she was she was stuck in bed all, you know, like Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Kind of like this is what I have to do. I have to work my my way back up. I, I need to get back. So she started working on, on her poetry. Yeah. And not only that, she also had a lot of her old literary friends come by the uh, hospital and talk to her. She had Jim Carroll come by. She had Tom Verlaine come by. Yeah. Richard Hell came over with a typewriter. He's like, hey, let's get let, let's get something going. Yeah. Which is great that she had a lot of she had a lot of supporters there who were backing her on this uh, as she worked on her first major poetry book, Babel. And uh, then she started writing songs again. So that means she was getting her words back. And Patty, she was finally ready to get started on a new album and call it Easter. Basically, the idea of resurrection. 
She said it's about a phoenix rising from the ashes or also a person who just fell down and got up again. <laughs> I, I mean, she, okay, so she's still got a little rock star mentality. And she's like, I'm a fighter, just like Jesus. <laughs> but you know what? We're going to let her go with this. We're going to let her you know, go. You know, yeah. Art is art sometimes. <laughs> and, and pretty soon, uh, Batty was out of traction and back in action. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the flyer said on her comeback shows at CBGB's. <laughs> and she tore her neck brace like, like off halfway through the set, which would have been really cool to see. Yeah, it would have been. And then that was the what right? That was when she did the shows with the damned and the dead boys, and she just said, You guys out. <laughs> like the runaways. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, like I, I the runaways and the sleds, like, come on, that's going a little far. With the damned, yeah. Get him out of there. Because they're on the show too. <laughs> and you know what? And that was actually the dam's first show in America too. Was yeah. a matinee, that matinee show, or playing the matinee before the Patty Smith comeback show. Yeah, it was the damned, the dead boys who also do not like Patty Smith. No, uh, because because it's the way they treated each other. Yeah. Uh, and so, but you know, it'll all work out. It'll all work out. And then in August of 1977, the Patty Smith group went to the studio to record Easter. And Patty chose Jimmy Iovine as their producer, this new up and coming guy who had worked <laughs> with John Lennon and Bruce Springsteen. This was his first producing job. But, you know, let's see how he does. Let's see how he does. Yeah. I mean, the, Jimmy he's Iovine is one of the most the important founder of figures. Interscope. <laughs> you know, he's, he's Dr. Dre's like business partner. Yeah. It's the thing that people listen to the kids on the streets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> Old enough to not get suckered into buying a pair of Beats. This, yeah, that's true. And this guy is massive, massive in the music industry yeah. now. But back then, he was just in his 20s. Yeah. And and he was just, this was his first producing job. And and Patty fought for him. She mm. fought for him because she knew he was willing to work hard and 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 spend hours and, and do whatever he gets to, to get the right sound. Yeah. And Jimmy Iovine at this time, like, I'd describe him as halfway between John Cale and the guy that produced Radio Ethiopia. Like, a little bit more creative, uh, but still knows how to make a fucking hit, as we shall soon see. Now, I know it's going to be a controversial opinion, but I actually like Radio Ethiopia more than I like Easter. Sure, Easter's cover is iconic, and it's got her most popular song, which we'll get to here in a bit, and Ghost Dance is a great song, and so on and so forth. But Easter kind of bugs me because it also has Patti Smith's best song musically, which gets entirely ruined by her own artistic hubris. Now, the song in question, which has recently been taken off all streaming platforms, not only has the N-word in the title, but it uses the slur no less than 11 times in 3 minutes and 24 seconds, all out of some misguided attempt to change the meaning of the N-word to become a blanket term for outsider. Yeah, like you said, it's hubris. Yeah. I, I finally looked that up because the <laughs> other day I, I was confused with hubris, arrogance, but arrogance in the sense of that there are consequences. Yeah. And from the five months that we've been studying Patti Smith, my get, my that is my best guess, that it's hubris. I, I don't believe that Patti Smith is racist or had any racist motivations, no. especially with this song. Um, that album, Easter, she wanted to name the whole album Rock and Roll Handwork. <laughs> I swear to God. She, it's, like, it's, it's like a Spinal Tap thing. It's like, uh, you should have seen the cover they really wanted. Like, so she truly was totally hell-bent on this idea of co-opting this word and using it for, you know, and, and trying to tell everyone to come along with this. But the truth is, is it's not her word. No. Plain and simple. God, and no. a lot of people gave her shit about it and still do to this day. So from what I see, some people are completely turned off by her and don't listen to any of her stuff which I understand. And other people just find it cringy and rather listen to Patti Smith's other songs, which I also understand. And other people just like the song and it doesn't bother them. Yeah. Okay, fine. But to me, I don't think she's a racist, but I do think that her 
stubbornness, her, her narrow thinking in this case, um, and sometimes putting it under the banner of art yes. doesn't magically make it okay. So it's on YouTube. Check it out if you want. Uh, learn from the context that we gave you and uh, make your own decision. And even if you decide it doesn't affect you, it can and does with other people around you. Absolutely. Just something to remember. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that, as you said, they thought they were going to pull it off. It's It goes even beyond the out, al- like trying to name the album uh, after this song. According to one of my personal sources, the Patti Smith group was so fucking sure that their new definition of the N-word was going to take off. They had hundreds of pens made that simply printed the name of the song, racial slur and all, except it was abbreviated to R&R N-word. Now, as we all know, the new definition did not catch on. <laughs> no! <laughs> And not a lot of people ended up pinning those buttons to their leather jacket and wearing them around New York City in 1977. Yes. And this is a true thing. Or not 77, 79. 79. But this is a real thing that Marcus told me probably like you told me this years ago. Years ago. So we do have insider knowledge that this is a real thing that that they were ready (laughs) to blanket the whole city with. Oh, God. But that is to say that while it was a stupid, arrogant, pretentious artistic decision, even for 1979, it certainly wasn't one made in bad faith. Now, incredibly, the band, okay, it's not just the album. It's not just the fucking buttons. They they actually push for this song to be the single. <laughs> You want a what? <laughs> I, we just we need Paul Giamatti on the phone, and that's the whole scene. God damn it, Patty! <laughs> <laughs> and it's that's the thing. Admittedly, it's catchy as fuck. I mean, especially with its chorus of you know, outside of society, that's where I want to be. But Jimmy Iovine and the record company knew that trying to make it the single, just like Patty's goal for the song, was a misguided fantasy. But. Around the same time that Iovine was producing Easter in New York's record plant studios, he was also engineering another album in the room right next door for another blue-collar artist from New Jersey who had a boatload of songs just ready to be recorded. Like dozens. (laughs) Dozens upon dozens. The album was Darkness on the Edge of Town, and the artist was Bruce Springsteen.
And if you're wondering if I'm going to fucking address the E Street Band controversy that I introduced under the Charles Starkweather episode of Last Podcast on the Left. Uh, no. Remind me. <laughs> I said that I liked my I realized that my problem with Bruce Springsteen throughout the years was that I didn't dislike Bruce Springsteen. It's just that I preferred Bruce Springsteen without the E Street Band. OK. Although Darkness on the Edge of Town is my favorite Bruce Springsteen album with the E Street Band. So <laughs> fucking I'm a complicated motherfucker. Yes, yes. He's got many layers. Remember, we Shrek him all the time. Now, Springsteen had recorded a number of demos for Darkness on the Edge of Town that Iovine had been privy to. And the songs that Springsteen was choosing for an album called Darkness on the Edge of Town, they weren't the catchiest and most romantic that he was writing at the time. So Iovine asked Bruce if he had anything that might work well for Patty's voice because hey, we need a single because you don't want to know what they want to use. <laughs> so Springsteen offered up a tape of a demo that was mostly a lot of trademark Springsteen mumbling. But this demo had one very clear-cut, brilliant line. Because the night belongs to lovers. Yes, uh, Bruce Springsteen, he spent over a year recording for this album. And on the very first day in the studio, like one of the very first songs, was this song. <laughs> That's insane. Something about overthinking it. <laughs> Just don't overthink it. Now, Patty took this demo to her apartment at 1 Fifth Avenue and listened to it over and over all night long. And she listened to it while she was waiting for a call from Fred Sonic Smith, who was already the love of her life, whether she'd admitted it yet or not. But from the desire for Fred to call her came the line, love is a ring, the telephone. And by the next morning, Patty Smith had written all of the verses and added a line to the chorus that harkened back to the primal nature of her debut album, Because the Night Belongs to Lust. This is it. Our biggest hit. We're here. It's classic. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close, try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed Make a whole bunch of people in a bar happy all at once. Put that one on the fucking I jukebox. I love this song. I fucking love this song. <laughs> yeah, of course. Unapologetically. Yeah, it's Because of the Night. I don't know why anyone would argue that Because of the Night is not a fucking amazing song. I'm sure I'll find someone. But I love this song personally. I do. Uh, so when Patty heard the song, you know, Because of the Night, when she got the demo and everything and she wrote the lyrics, the next day she had a band meeting and she told the guys, listen, I got this song. Like she's holding the tape. I got this song. Uh, it's a really great song. Uh, but the thing is, you guys didn't write it. So if anyone has any objections, like, let me know and I can shut this down. And she was like, going to throw the tape out the window or something. <laughs> and the guys were like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Do the song. Do the song. I don't care that we didn't write it. We'll, we'll play it. We'll play yeah. it. So the song. Well, to be fair, 
Uh, Patti Smith did write most of the lyrics. Like it was like that Bruce Springsteen came up with the music and he came up with the chorus. But all of the all of the verses are Patti Smith's. Yes, but she was afraid that her band would be mad that they didn't write the music to yeah. it. Yeah. And but they obviously they're like, who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck? Put it on. Okay. We so, need something. So the single. Yeah, you should have seen what they really wanted. <laughs> so the single was released on March second, nineteen seventy eight, and it is a huge. Hit. Yeah. It hits number 13 on the top 40 Billboard charts. It's a hit in America and all over the world. It goes to number one everywhere else. Everyone goes crazy for it. Finally, the first New York underground band to hit it in the mainstream. Blondie would follow less than a year later with Heart of Glass that we all know, of course, and mm. love. But Patty, she And then was, Talking Heads after that. And then Talking Heads. It, it, it just goes on and on and on, which is fantastic. Uh, but Patty was soon going to be a stranger to New York, at least for a time, because a month before Because the Night came out and Easter was, you know, before Easter was released, she uh, announced that she was moving to Detroit to live with her new love, Fred Sonic Smith. Yeah. So she was leaving. It was the end of an era. It really was. And there's actually a very nice full circle moment in Just Kids. It's actually one of my favorite passages uh, where she's talking about walking around like the Lower East Side uh, with Robert Maplethorpe like at night. And because the night is coming out of every car stereo, it's coming out of every bar. And Robert Maplethorpe is like so proud of her because he always wanted her to write a hit. You're yeah. like, you've got the talent. You've got just write a fucking hit. Just write a hit. Uh, and with them, you know, starting off the way they did and have it come full circle. Being uh, homeless, having lettuce soup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very, very nice moment. Yeah. Now, by the time Patti Smith went up to Bearsville Studios in upstate New York to record her fourth and final album of the 70s, Wave, it would probably be fair to say that she was decidedly over it when it came to being a rock star. She was tired. She was done. She and the band showed up with no prepared material. They'd barely rehearsed. And there was like no pre-production at all. Nothing. And producer Todd Rundgren, who we talked at at length in one of our Extra Play episodes, he seemed to have been hired for the job partly because Patty just wanted to work with a friend whom she trusted artistically and personally. Now, of course, it didn't hurt that Rundgren had just produced Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf, which is one of the best-selling albums of all time. Yeah, of course I'm going to call my friend. <laughs> yeah, he, remember he bought an estate in Hawaii off of that shit. Yes. But I think that Patty mostly just wanted to fucking hang out. With a friend? Yeah, yeah. why not? Yeah. But considering how lax the recording of Wave was, it's got damn good songs, particularly Frederick and especially Dancing Barefoot. Now, Dancing Barefoot was released in 1979, but one could argue that this song was a huge influence on the sound of the entire next decade. You can hear The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Smiths, Kate Bush, and a ton of other new wave artists that fell on the cooler side of the 80s in this song right here.
Yeah, it's fucking everything. It you know, it's it's the it's the next decade. It's new. It's the cool new wave. I yeah. mean, I don't think you'd have you know that Kate Bush song running up that hill. You know, the one I that, love that song. I've listened to it a hundred times. I know that that became so huge with Stranger Things this year. You wouldn't have that, I don't think, without yeah. Dancing Barefoot. Uh, but before the recording of Wave was even finished, Patty Smith had already told Todd Rundgren that she was planning on retiring to live a life with Fred out in Detroit, doing whatever a young married couple might do. And so after a 42-date tour in half a dozen countries in support of Wave, in which Patti Smith very much didn't enjoy herself, the Patti Smith group played their final show in Florence, Italy on September 10th, 1979 for a crowd of 70,000 people, which was a far cry from the 150 artsy-fartsies that had seen Patti and Lenny in their debut at St. Mark's eight years before. After the show in which a small riot broke out, Patty told her band that that's it. She wanted to live a life with Fred in Detroit, raising kids where she could maybe grow up a little bit and take stock of her life. And that's exactly what she did. Yeah. Six months after Patty left her group, she and Fred got married and they raised two kids, a boy and a girl in a Detroit suburb called St. Clair Shores. And while pregnant with her second child, Patty found out that Robert Mablethorpe was hospitalized with AIDS related pneumonia. And unfortunately, he died on March 9th, 1989. And then less than a year later, Richard Soule, the keyboardist in the Smith, Patty Smith group, passed away on June 3rd, 1990. Then the unimaginable happened. Patty's husband, Fred, who had been sick for some time, died of heart failure in November 1994. And then exactly a month later, her brother Todd would die of a coronary. He and Fred were only 45 and 46 years old. It's just... It's just tragedy tragic. after yeah. tragedy, yeah. And then bassist Ivan Kral would later pass away in late 2020 at the age of 71. R.I.P. to all of them. Yeah, and thank Christ, Lenny K's still going strong. Yes, <laughs> yes. And we're very happy Lenny for Kay's, that. Lenny K's still fine. He just replaced, um, again, uh, Lightning Strikes, uh, his new book. It's worth reading. Absolutely. And in the years after Patty walked away from the Patty Smith group in 1979, she released an album, Dream of Life, with her husband, Fred, in 1988, and then released six more studio albums with many of her bandmates and other guests. Uh, she published Just Kids, her memoir that won the National Book Award. Uh, she published also several other books, uh, working on photography, drawing, had exhibits in New York, London, and Paris, just to name a few. She was on an episode of Law & Order, <laughs> inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and became best friends with Michael Stipe. What a life. What a life. And she just released a new book. We had no, we've been working, seriously been working on this series for six months. Yes. And the week that we finish it, Patti Smith, surprisingly, just completely out of nowhere, released a book of photography. Yeah. So, and released a new song. Yeah. Too. Released a new song today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or a remix of an old song, but still released a song today. So still going strong, still working hard. But to me, nothing compares to when she was booked to headline the last night at CBGB's on October 15, 2006, the place that got their start when she got her start. CBGB's. OK, so it was already in limbo for like the past year and a half in like 2005. They almost shut down, but then got a last minute uh, reprieve. Remember, I was there in 2005 that we're still here. We're still here. Yeah. Unfortunately, by late 2006, Hilly Crystal knew it was time to pack it up. Yeah. You know, New York was never going to be New York again. But that's okay because they had a fantastic weekend of kick-ass shows to commemorate the end of a very significant era. 
And it wasn't all sad and nostalgic and boo-hoo. No, no, no. It was like, fuck it. We're going to kick this in the ass and put on amazing <laughs> shows for everyone. This is not a fucking temple. It's just what it is. Kids will find another club to play in. That's all Patti Smith said on stage while she played the, all the last songs. She, she did, obviously, all horses. She did okay. all her big songs. It was a three-hour set. Yes. Her with Lenny Kay, the rest of the band, and Flea. From the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> got together. They played it like it was 1975 again. And as, as well as doing covers, uh, like Pale Blue Eyes, Velvet Underground, and uh, Blondie's The Tide is High, and giving Debbie Harry a shout out, showing her respect to Debbie, and hopefully ending years of awkward feuding and, and, and just a strong showing of support, of women's solidarity. Yeah. And as well as a cover of The Dead Boys, who she also feuded with, and just being like, here, my hat's <laughs> off to you guys as well. It, it just it showed what Patty is capable of. Packing a room, rocking it out, and leaving people inspired. Very much so. Now, concerning Patti Smith's legacy, I think that it goes far beyond just musical influence. Although there's certainly no shortage of that. You can hear Patti Smith and PJ Harvey, R.E.M., Hole, all those bands and artists that I mentioned earlier, especially the Smiths, and a thousand others. But Patti Smith's true contribution to culture is, I think, one of attitude and bravery. See, one of the arguments that me and Carolina have had in making this series is whether or not Patti Smith is cool. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think she just isn't a lot of the time. Okay. <laughs> but that's part of what makes her so fucking important. An artist of true courage, which is what I think a poet is. They're not cool. They say cringy shit. They do thoughtless things. And they make a lot of enemies along the way. But I think that sort of behavior is something that's necessary to finding essential truths. Poets find something personal and they make it universal. They plug into that part of the collective unconscious through a game of numbers, trying anything and everything until they finally find the connection that speaks to people who are craving for someone to articulate their truth. But to that point, you can't try to be Patti Smith. You don't have to move to New York with no money and find the perfect soulmate and meet famous writers and write poetry and fuse mediums and groundbreaking ways and so on and so forth. But you can live by her example. All you have to do is follow your own path just like she did and follow it wherever it may take you. Listen to yourself, find your own way and retain the courage to keep walking it just like Patti Smith did. And if you find yourself stumbling, improvise and find a different beat, just like Patty did again and again throughout her life. The important thing is that you have the satisfaction of knowing that the path you're walking is yours alone. And showing that this way of life can work is ultimately Patty Smith's greatest gift. Yeah. And that's Patty Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. <laughs> That's it. That's it. We, uh, it was a long, long, and we have lots of sources. We have a lot of sources. Yeah. Can I go through them really quick? No, please do. All right, really quick. Uh, credit where credit's due. We read Just Kids by Patti Smith. National Book Award. Yeah. You remember? Uh, Dancing Barefoot by Dave Thompson. Uh, Patti Smith Complete, 1975 to 2002. Really great book of her lyrics, and she also explains a lot of stuff in them. Uh, Break It Up, Patti Smith's Horses and the Remaking of Rock and Roll by Mark Patris. Uh, and, uh, fantastic. And, I really like that one. Yes, and um, what my favorite one is Why Patti Smith Matters by Karen Rose. Really insightful. I, I can't recommend that book enough. And also Patti Smith on Patti Smith, Interviews and Encounters, edited by Aidan Levy. Lightning Striking. 
by Lenny Kay. Fantastic. What's Welsh for Zen? The Autobiography of John Cale by Victor Bacris and John Cale. And then I love this book, Joe Strummer and the Legend of the Clash by Chris Needs. Chris Needs is a solid, solid author. And uh, Squad, City Rocks, Protopunk and Beyond, a musical memoir from the margins by Richard Dodansky. He was uh, he was a drummer in the 101ers and Raincoats and everything. And of course, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire by Will Hermes. The Downtown Pop Underground by Kimbrew McLeod. And interviews on YouTube and whatever we can find online, the Patty Smith logbook.info, a great website, super helpful. And special thanks to research assistant, uh, Patrick Fisher for helping us out and outlining our main source. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. And so thank you guys. Thank you everybody. Oh. Really. This is, this is the end of an era for us as well. It is. And as we say goodbye to Patty Smith, so too do uh, Carolina and I say goodbye to New York city. Yes, we're moving to L.A. We're going to the West Coast. Uh, it's it's a little scary, yeah. but I'm also very, very excited for the future because there's so much that we have in store, and I'm, I I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. More release dates. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be beautiful. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Yeah. And as far as why, you know, I can sum it up in uh, four simple words. The reason why I think most people leave New York, it's time to go. It's time to go. Yeah. We'll be back. We'll be back. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, speaking of which, if uh, you have out there, if you're an L.A. person, if you know where we should go to see local shows, where we yes. should where we should go to see local bands, uh, where I should go for record shopping, you know, like it, just let us know. Send a, an email uh, to nodogsinspace at gmail.com. Uh, and I, we would very much uh, appreciate the guidance. Yes, we would. Thank you so much. And of course, if you are a person or a band that makes any kind of noise whatsoever, and would love for us to play it at the end of our episode, our main episodes. Uh, uh, please send them to nodogsinspace at gmail.com. Send it to there only there, please. Mm-hmm. That way we have it all in one place. And then that way we can play your song. It would be an honor to play your song because I know we got one that's awesome. Who's, who's the band of the week? This week's band is Trash Sound Conglomerate out of Seattle. They fittingly describe themselves as apocalypse pop. Uh, I fucking love it. I think it's absolutely perfect. Uh, This is their newest single. It's released just last July. It's appropriately titled So Over Summer. I love, love, love this song. And I know you will, too. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at No Dogs Pod. Uh, If you want a No Dogs in Space t-shirt, you can go to lastpodcastmerch.com. Thank you so much for being patient on this series. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us. Uh, And we will be back soon uh, with an extra play on nuggets. Yes. We're going to do a little bit of nuggets before we end the year. And then and then we're going to have our, our next thing that we haven't thought of yet. <laughs> our next series, but we're going to think yeah. about it. any suggestions, no dogs at space at gmail.com. Please. And it's and it's not just in the alternative space, like I said, we've decided that we're going to do whatever the fuck we want. So, you know, the next one it could be country, could be hip hop, could be metal, could be old rock, could be whatever. We're just going to do whatever the fuck we want whenever the fuck we want. That's right. Peace out. Later. Peace out. I don't know. (laughs) Bye.
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.